This is Exchanges Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're talking about this question, how can cities become resilient to climate change? We're joined in the studio by Amanda Hinlian and Sandra Lawson, authors of a new report from Goldman Sachs Global Markets Institute titled, Taking the Heat, Making Cities Resilient to Climate Change. Amanda and Sandra, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having us. Sandra, let's start with what gave rise to this report. You focused on the need to adapt to the effects of climate change and become more resilient. Why did you choose that angle rather than, say, lowering carbon emissions? We did a lot of research on the topic of climate change, and we were really stuck by how much attention goes to reducing carbon emissions and how little attention goes to this question of adaptation. While reducing carbon is incredibly important, and those efforts need to continue and they actually need to accelerate, it doesn't seem like there'll be enough for the world to withstand what's coming. Because the scientists say that the world has already warmed by about one degree Celsius over the past century and a bit, and that the world is gonna continue to warm, and that's for a couple of reasons. One is that there's just so much carbon already accumulated in the air, in the oceans, and that's gonna continue this warming process that can't just be turned off quickly. And secondly, because despite some progress on reducing emissions, the trajectory is not where it needs to be. So the world is going to continue to warm, and that means that the world is going to need to adapt to the changes that are coming. Heat, storms, flooding, all of these are likely to occur more frequently in the next few years. Right, and you get into the question of how you allocate resources, too, because resources are not infinite. Amanda, why did you hone in on cities in particular and not more rural or suburban communities? It's a good question. We struggled with it a little bit because we know that climate change and the need to adapt to climate change is not a local problem. It's a global problem. But part of the reason why we really tried to concentrate on cities was twofold. One of them is that cities today are already home to more than half of the global population, and that's a share that's only expected to grow over time. And the other reason is that cities produce roughly 80% of global GDP. And so the combination of population density and economic activity makes it likely when you think about this from an investment perspective that cities would be on the front lines of beginning to experiment and go down the path of really truly adapting to climate change. Now to Sandra's point, I think cities are already doing really interesting things as it relates to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We see more bike lanes, more parks, more alternative sources of energy being used, but cities are much less far along in thinking about how to adapt. And again, There are a lot of people who live in cities, and there's a lot of economic activity concentrated there. And so, again, adaptation is likely to occur outside of cities as well, but it's a reasonable starting point to think about cities. There's also this question of global versus local. So climate change is certainly a global problem, but when you're asking people to solve a global problem, sometimes the results are not obvious to them and it's hard to motivate them. If you say your city is at risk of flooding and you need to pay taxes to protect your city, your home, your business from flooding, that's easier to motivate people politically. Yeah, we certainly spent a lot of time in the wake of Sandy thinking about that here in downtown. One of the things you talk about in the report is this issue of fairness and that, as my mother used to say, life is not always fair. Mine too. (laughs) What do you mean by that in this context? You know, when you think about cities, not all cities have the same benefits or advantages. 
and some cities are more economically prosperous and have large, dense populations and may also have a prior track record of raising financing to undergo infrastructure projects of the sort that we discuss in this paper. And those cities are likely to have a natural advantage in continuing down the path of thinking through becoming more resilient to climate change. There are other cities that may have less dense populations or less robust economic activity or maybe in geographic locations that are simply not beneficial to them and that make technically adapting more difficult or unfeasible and that may simply lack the resources to make adaptation work for them. So there are going to be questions of fairness across cities. Not every city is going to have the same resources and the same benefits. Now, even within cities, even the most prosperous ones, because to the exact point, Jake, you raised at the outset, financial resources are not unlimited, those cities are still going to have to make choices about where to allocate funds and what makes the most sense. And again, that may also raise questions of fairness, even within cities that are relatively prosperous. Obviously, you said at the beginning, Sandra, that there's near universal scientific consensus around that human behavior is contributing to climate change. What are the consequences that scientists are pointing to or focused on? Well, as a preface, we're not scientists and we are not trying to make a scientific argument. We know that there's a lot of still uncertainty about the magnitude, the timing, the scope. But we're looking at the consensus, which is, in fact, that the Earth is warming and is likely to continue to warm. And so the consensus is also that there's a pretty wide range of negative outcomes that could come from this. So these include hotter temperatures, more heat waves, longer heat waves, hotter heat waves, rising sea levels that are going to flood coastal cities. You know, it's worth noting that about 40% of the world's population lives within 100 kilometers or 60 miles of the coast. And obviously you have huge cities producing a tremendous amount of economic activity on the coast. So think of New York, obviously, Tokyo, Mumbai. Those are all at risk from flooding. We are probably also going to see more destructive weather events. No one needs to be reminded of those are already underway. So storms, wind, flooding, fire, Wildfires, think of the West Coast. Yeah. And also storms in places where people don't expect them, which we've also seen. And then in addition to that, you're likely to see threats to human health because there may be diseases moving out of places where they are now into places where people don't have immunity and a lot of pressure on food and livestock and drinking water, which is already a problem in large parts of the world, especially drinking water. So there are a lot of others, but I think that's enough to stop now. Yeah, that's enough. Can I add one? No, can I add one scare (laughs) once? When you think about the ocean acidifying Mm -hmm. and warming, there are effects to ecosystems, and we don't even know what all of the knock-on consequences of that will be. But again, the general scientific consensus would point to things like coral reefs potentially being extinct Mm -hmm. within this century because they're fixed. They can't relocate to cooler waters or less acidic waters. For those of you who would like to see a coral reef in your lifetime, you may want to do that now. Mm -hmm. And for people who want to move away from eating meat towards fish, that's at risk as well. Let's talk a little bit about infrastructure. What are the implications for cities as they think about renewing their infrastructure base or adding new infrastructure? You know, it's a really broad question that we tackle in the paper, and we'll take you through some of the high-level ideas. But when you think about infrastructure more broadly, there are obviously cities that are developed today that are looking at infrastructure replacement cycles. And there are cities that are rapidly urbanizing that are building infrastructure for the first time. 
some of the rapidly urbanizing cities may actually find themselves better or worse placed, depending on their economic strength, to think about climate change and resilience to climate change as they build new infrastructure. Some of the cities that are already developed, you're looking at bridges, roads, rail infrastructure that is quite old. Many of those structures will need to be upgraded. It can't be upgraded necessarily with reference to historical stresses, because the issue going forward is we don't know how big the tail risk events associated with climate change could be. When I think about a city, I think about all of the things that you do on a daily basis that affect your life, whether it's the building that you live in and the building codes associated with that. Where is the electronic equipment housed? Well, should it be in the basement if you're in a flood zone or you're at risk of storm surges? Probably not. Do your windows literally need to be stronger to withstand higher winds? Probably. And those codes will need to adapt and adjust over time. You think about coastal locations, and again, Sandra mentioned how many cities are near coastlines and how many people live near coastlines. There's much that could be done to protect coastlines with seawalls and levees and other elements like that. And Jake, you referenced Sandy in New York. That's something that's very real. But then think about transportation systems. Are roads in the right places in terms of where weather may actually affect them or flood them? Are rail systems in the right locations to withstand changes in weather patterns over time? And even are the interconnection points for transportation strong enough so that if heat becomes extreme or cold becomes extreme, depending on the location, people are able to withstand transfer points in between locations? And then think about things like the power grid. The U.S. power grid is over 100 years old. And if you look at some of the statistics from the Department of Energy, they'll tell you that the vast majority of power outages in the U.S. are due to extreme weather events. That grid in and of itself needs to be hardened. And it sounds like a simple thing to say, well, power lines actually need to go below ground. But that's a massive infrastructure build out. So when we talk about how it is that cities need to become more resilient over time, there's an incredibly broad swath of things that actually need to occur for that to unfold. I want to add one more, which is this question of soft infrastructure that requires a lot of urban planning. In addition to all of the hard infrastructure that Amanda talked about, you need other things like better health systems and probably more public health programs, and you need better education, and you need cooling centers to be opened up during these longer, hotter heat waves. You need places where people can go and they know they can take refuge from storms or hurricanes. It's less capital intensive than the infrastructure, but all of it is really important and it requires a lot of coordination within a city among all the different departments and a lot of leadership too. Getting back to capital intensive, all the things that Amanda outlined cost a lot of money, mm-hmm. uh, take time as well. How are you thinking about the infrastructure investment and financing challenge that all of this entails? We're thinking about it as an all-of-the-above approach. Even the most prosperous cities are not going to be able to fund this stuff alone. They have their local tax revenues, and cities that are developing quickly may be able to benefit from taxes on land development. Some cities will turn to municipal bonds, but those aren't available in most of the world. But even where they are, that's not going to be enough. So cities are going to have to look to their national governments for funding, And then they're going to have to reach out to the private sector and think about public-private partnerships for these huge infrastructure projects like bridges and roads and potentially power systems. 
there's a role for institutional investors, particularly ones with a long-term outlook, like sovereign wealth funds or like pension funds, that are willing to make these very long-term commitments in investing. In developing countries, you also have international institutions like the World Bank and the regional development banks, and they're already playing a really important role, and that will continue. Insurance matters, too, in lots of ways, but mostly there needs to be a mechanism for pricing risk, like flood risk and fire risk, more realistically, so that people don't build and keep rebuilding again and again in flood-prone or fire-prone areas. Amanda, when should cities start to adapt? I mean, New York did a lot of work in the wake of Sandy. You know, that was a shock to the system and forced the city to think about its own resilience. And what type of cities need to move the quickest? If you think about the question from a traditional investment perspective, the answer is usually pretty straightforward. You have a pool of capital, you invest it, you think about what the returns are on that capital over time, and you decide to invest today or later, depending on which is going to earn you a higher return. This is far more complicated because what you're talking about as the climate changes are extreme tail events and the risk of those events. And what's so uncertain about the changing climate is what events will occur when, what path will they take, what other knock-on consequences could occur. So you hear people talking about melting glacier ice caps and things like that. When irreversible events begin to unfold, the entire chain of risk changes. Our perspective is, doesn't actually benefit you to wait to learn more information the way it would in a normal risk-reward situation where you're thinking about investment. Because these are tail risk events that aren't going to become more predictable the closer you get to them. In fact, waiting may make it so that it's too late and you've already lost your ability to get ahead of some of the challenges still makes this a difficult question to answer for investors. And so our general recommendation is start now. Start now, particularly if you have areas of exposure that you're aware of and where you can begin to think about investing. And try to do it in ways that enable you over time to adapt those investments as things change and so that you can benefit from input costs and economies of scale that come from new technologies that emerge that make some of these problems easier to adapt to and to address in more economically feasible ways over time. You spent a lot of time on this. What surprised you most when you dug into these issues? What were the most surprising findings in the report? I would say for both of us, and actually for the whole team that worked on the report, it was how little attention goes to this question of adaptation. Despite all the focus on climate change, it's this point where we started, the resources, the attention, the money are going to reducing carbon. And of course that's critical, but we were really surprised by how few people are focusing on adaptation in an action-oriented way. Amanda, anything that stood out for you? That was 100% my takeaway as well, which is just how little capital is actually going towards this question. Now, the one caveat I would say is, even as we were conducting the research and thinking through these particular questions, we started to see people begin to talk about these issues a little bit more than they had in the past. So it feels a little bit like maybe that is on the precipice of changing, but only time will tell. For us, I think really the lack of focus on resilience was the most interesting takeaway. So given that, and given that you've dug in a little bit, what do you want to find out next? What's on the docket for your next report? 
So we're going to let our client demand lead us as we always do, but there are so many interesting things going on in the broader climate sphere and in the ESG sphere as well. And our clients are starting to look at more innovative ways of raising financing, of looking at climate bonds and all other sort of interesting projects. And so for us, we want to see this continue to take off and be a topic of focus, but we're likely to explore others. And we may continue to talk about adding adaptation, we may do it relative to food, for example, and agriculture. But if the client demand changes, we'll explore other areas as well. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Amanda and Sandra. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for having us. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. For more from Goldman Sachs experts, as well as influential policymakers, academics, and investors on market-moving topics, be sure to check out our new podcast, Top of Mind at Goldman Sachs, hosted by Allison Nathan, a senior strategist in the firm's research division. Thank you. This podcast was recorded on September 20th, 2019. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.